I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. It's about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. Join movement expert Aaron Alexander as he dives into the minds of the foremost innovative healthcare thinkers and movement masters on their approach to optimal health and wellness. Align Podcast. Why, hello, and welcome back to the Align Podcast. I am your host, Aaron Alexander, and today I had the privilege of speaking to New York Times best-selling author, Mr. Stephen Kotler. In this conversation, we got into the impact of psychedelics and marijuana on athletic performance. We got into why in the world does time slow down when you go through extreme, potentially traumatic instances, such as like a car accident or skydiving or whatever it may be. And so much more than that. I had a fantastic time talking to Stephen, and I know you guys are going to get so much out of this conversation. As you pointed out, we suck at multitasking. The human brain is not built for multitasking. So you want to stretch. You want to be outside your comfort zone, but you don't want to snap. The secret to Superman is raising the challenge level a little bit every single day. Once again, I thank you in advance for your subscription, for your shares, and for your comments on iTunes. They determine the visibility and the ranking of the show, and we can't do it without you. And when you get off the show, make sure that you check out the website, aligntherapy.com. That's A-L-I-G-N therapy.com. On there, you'll find show notes, more information about the authors, uh, more information about the topics that we chat about, and much more than that. As well, we I have over a 100 videos, hundreds of videos on functional movement practices, uh, self-care, and how to get the most out of your body. I have the blog that gives you actionable tips on how to get stronger, faster, leaner, and smarter today. And I offer online coaching. We work on optimal performance through mobility, strength training, and teaching you how to make every moment an opportunity to get stronger, get smarter, and get better in your body. And as well, you can check out the Ultimate Self-Care Kit. It's small enough to fit underneath your seat of your car, and it's like a physical therapist and a massage therapist all wrapped up into one package. You're going to love the website. I hope you guys get tons of value from it. And here we go. Back to Mr. Stephen Kotler. Thank you, guys. Align Podcast. Millions of people died. Like steroids were are phenomenal for AIDS. Phenomenal for AIDS. They're, they, I mean, there's so much evidence and they just because they threaten sports right it was it's the craziest it's the craziest fucking story right. and they set uh they set what's his name uh walter jacobs was that his name can't remember his name they called him the first aids martyr it was like the steroid doctor in california they sent him to jail for fucking ever right yeah i mean so my so my thing with steroids is i think that anytime it's like there's no such thing as free lunch which well we should probably start recording at some point but we'll, we'll you know after this, we'll start recording something. <laughs> but, you know, it's like there's no such thing as free lunch, you know. So I think oftentimes when we get that really like huge bang, you know, I'm always a bit skeptical about it, you know. And so with steroids, it's one of those things where, like there are drawbacks for sure, but so are there drawbacks with antibiotics. So are there drawbacks with pesticides. So are there drawbacks with all this stuff that kills life that we're okay with, you know. So like with that, it's like, eh. I was on replacement. I did testosterone replacement for um, uh, two years after Lyme disease because my testosterone count was like an 85-year-old man when I was 29 or 30, right? Right. So um, 
I never really stacked up to bodybuilding doses or any of that stuff. But I, the thing that amazed me most about steroids is I realized that their reputation for adding mass yeah. and actual strength, not even mass, but usable strength, strength that translates to I'm taking this substance and I can push more weight right. was minimal compared oh. to what it did for recovery, which was really what it did. Like I, The funny thing about steroids is I'm always like, guys, they're not really strength-building drugs. They're great recovery drugs. People have it sort of backwards on that one. What were you taking, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, 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 mostly testosterone and androgone. Okay. And you had, and you had a good experience with it. No, no drawbacks, nothing like that. None, but I was not doing super large doses. Yeah. So I was never stacking or doing anything like that. And I was just trying to get my testosterone levels back to normal. And ultimately I felt like I was getting diminishing returns. Maybe if I was upping my doses and stuff like that, it would have been different. But ultimately I was like, you know what? I can, I the same benefit I'm getting here, I can get it through nutrition. Right. Um, and that's essentially, you know, I, did, I got to a certain point after Lyme disease where I was like, you know what? I've had so much shit, whether it's natural or not, whatever, in my system, try to try to fight this illness for so many years. Right. I wanted nothing. So for like eight years, until the, earlier this year, I took no supplements, nothing. I did nothing other than just eat right, um, because I just, I, I just didn't want anything else in my body. Sure. And that's the thing is eating right can be supplements. You know, it's, <laughs> you know, it's like we think like eating right, like eating right, eating well, isn't just like I mean, peanut butter sandwiches. You know, I do, that's what I do what you do. Like I'll throw everything in the blender <laughs> right. green, right? And just like my, you know, my breakfast is totally disgusting. Nobody in their right mind should actually eat it or drink it. But it works. Yes. In the, in, in the morning, I do uh, raw eggs. I do raw butter. I do raw yogurt. I do kale. I do broccoli. I do cauliflower. Um, I do a hemp protein supplement. Like, it's pretty freaking disgustingly delicious. Like, I think it's fantastic. But if you were to watch me, like, pouring chunky fermented kefir milk into yeah, the blender. Yeah, I, I, do, I, do, I do it differently. <laughs> I, do, I usually do, like, a, I do protein, almond milk, and almond butter. Like, that, that concoction together right. for, to get my protein powder and then I do the greens separate. I don't put them together. I, I, the protein powder, maybe your hemp-based protein it works better than the stuff I've been using, but I can't mix my shit with If I mix in the, the, the kale and the veggies and the whatever, it's just awful. <laughs> Well, so for the sake of uh, what, yeah, we're, what, we're, what we're actually talking about. Yeah, let's just start this thing. Go. Start Where, this what, bitch. What, by the way, what, we're talking flow, right? We're talking flow. Yeah. Okay. Um, I would at some point like for you to just, I'd probably like the very end, I'll probably ask you just to bring up abundance and just kind of like what that is because I think it's a radical topic and I, I, I try to... I try to dance more in the realm of optimism. You know, it's so easy to say the world is fucked and it's like, you know, we got no, there's nothing left. You know, the resources are running out. It's like, okay, you know, or we could look at it from the other side, you know, the coin. And so I would like to chat about that, but like, you know, just a little bit. But yeah, flow is the big thing that I'm really fascinated about. And I love the book, man. I had such a fantastic time reading it. It was like, it was, it was great. So appreciate it. Um, is there anything that you want to chat about in particular that you want me to mention th during the during the talk? No, the I mean the only thing if we can find a way in that doesn't involve me having to tell my Lyme disease story again. Absolutely. Um, and that's the cause just because I've told it so many times, and I think you know what I've been trying to do on podcasts is not cover the same material. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's some of it we got to cover. There's there's no way around it. But I've been trying to do so that because I found that my audience listens, you know, they'll listen to like 
almost everything I put out there. Sure. And I don't want to bore the shit out of them. Yeah, man. No, I understand. That's it's the same thing because I have a lot of like ideas that I'm like I love talking about them, but it's I, I completely understand. So flow is a good one. Um, that's the main thing that I want to chat about. So that should be easy. Great. Let's do it. Awesome. Cool. So, Stephen Kotler, thank you so much for coming on. I'm so psyched to chat with you. I love the book, Rise of Superman. Um, I wanted to riff a bit on just firstly, what is flow? And then what is your background with that? How did you become so intrigued with the subject? So, flow is defined technically as an optimal state of consciousness. It's a state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. And there's lots of different names. Some people call it runner's high or being in the zone or being unconscious or being in the pocket. The list sort of goes on and on. Flow is a technical term and I'll, I'll explain why in half a sec. Um, but it refers to those moments of total absorption, right? Where you get so lost in the task at hand, so focused on what you're doing, everything else disappears. Your sense of self, self-consciousness, they go away. Time dilates, which means it passes strangely, it speeds up or it slows down. And throughout all aspects of performance, mental and physical, go through the roof. And the reason, and flow speaks to the, the reason it's called flow is back in the 1960s and 70s, a, uh, the chairman of the University of Chicago Psychology Department, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, did what is still the largest psychological study ever done on ultimate human performance. He went around the world asking people about the times in their life, they felt their best and they performed their best, and he got back all these flow experiences. And in describing those experiences, everybody said the same thing. They said, when I'm in this state, Every action, every decision leads seamlessly, fluidly, perfectly to the next. So the state feels flowy. So flow is actually, from a phenomenological perspective, right, the state feels like flow. So it's an actual technical def definition kind of couched in this bad new age word. And so one of the things that you mentioned, which is super fascinating, is time slowing down, you know, and you hear about like the perception of time with like, you know, a fly. I'm not exactly sure what the perception of time in a fly is, but they say it's a lot slower. They're perceiving things slower than what we are. If you've ever been in like a car accident or you've ever been in, you know, an extreme situation, you will notice that time will slow down. Can you break down a bit or get into what that is exactly? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is one of the great things that we now learned about flow. So I gotta back it up a little bit. When you're talking about kind of like the root cause of, of, of ultimate performance of flow, there was a belief that was dominant for most of the 20th century that you've probably heard of that, hey, we only use about 10% of our brain, so flow, ultimate human performance, must be the full brain on overdrive, right? Yeah. Turns out that's a myth. In fact, it's now known as the 10% brain myth. And it was sort of like, a misquote of William James filtered through like Dale Carnegie's How to Get Rich and Influence People, weird ass filter. Um, and uh, let me unplug this. Sorry about that. No, um, it's okay. And, uh, you know, came up and it was, it was dominant. Turns out, had it back, entirely backwards. During flow, the brain is, brain is becoming hyperactive. It's becoming hypoactive. Hypo, H-Y-P-O. It's the opposite of hyper. It means to slow down, to shut down. So what actually, one of the causes of flow is what's known as transient, meaning temporary, hypofrontality. Hypo, to slow down and deactivate. Frontality is the prefrontal cortex, right? It's the part of your brain. It's right behind the forehead. This is what houses all of your executive function, your higher cognitive functions, complex decision-making, your morality, your sense of will, your sense of self. So it turns out time is calculated all over the prefrontal cortex. Hmm. In flow, as parts of the prefrontal cortex start to shut out, shut down, 
We can no longer separate past from present from future, and we're plunged into what researchers now call the elongated now, right? That perennial, I be here now, flow drives you there now, but it doesn't do it through some mystical gateway. It does it because it shuts down the parts of your brain that can calculate time. So that's why time gets screwed up. And really, if you dig under the hood at the very bottom, and this is David Eagleman's research at Baylor, David discovered that it's really an efficiency exchange. So your conscious mind, where normal thinking goes on, it's very, very powerful, but it's really slow, and it's very energy intense, expensive. So your brain at rest, at rest, you're doing nothing. You're sitting in a chair and daydreaming. It's using 25% of your energy, and that's at rest. So it goes up with activity, right? The brain is always trying to conserve energy. How do I save calories? It does this by, at certain points, it will trade conscious processing for subconscious processing. Subconscious processing is very energy efficient. It's very, very fast, right? Flow is actually the only time when you're awake, you're conscious, and you can actually watch the subconscious at work. That's one of the other reasons time passes so strangely, because your conscious mind, thoughts move at about 150 miles an hour. The subconscious, it's like 2,000 to 5,000 miles an hour. So when you're watching thoughts move, it looks like you're, you know, the ideas are coming to you before you've even finished the thought, because it's so much faster, right? So the combination of all those things is why time passes so strangely. Awesome. And so one of the things that you mentioned in the book is implicit versus explicit system, you know, so, so essentially similar concept, like hyperfrontality versus hypo, you know, so when we are really using more our cognitive, you know, our prefrontal cortex, our logical linear, uh, mind, it's ends up gassing us, you know, you get tired, like, you know, you just, I can you try breaking down like a math problem for a while, it wears you out, you know, then it's almost paradoxical, I think, because you think like, well, what about when I'm like highlining across a canyon, you know, you'd think that that would be more mentally taxing. But what you're saying is when you're in that state of flow, your brain is actually saving energy. Is that right? It actually is. I mean, it is saving energy by switching over from subconscious processing. There's a whole bunch of neurochemicals. There's a whole bunch of other things going on that are actually energy expensive. So flow, you know, it's exhausting. A, a, a serious flow state, right, where performance is massively elevated. You come out the other end, you've burned a lot of calories, right? You've used a lot of energy. But what starts the process is this efficiency exchange. Okay. And then, so I think that there's likely a misconception of what, because I mean, the, the title of your book is The Rise of Superman, you know, and you have a person like, what is he doing, kayaking or something on the front there. So you'd think that like the only way to get into this state is through doing something extreme, you know, so is there means of entering this place in your mind without a, you know, a wingsuit? Yeah. So let me, you're right. We do. Uh, it's Travis Rice on the cover, and he's snowboarding. But what I love about that image is you can't tell what he's doing. You know, it's something exciting, but it could be kayaking, could be snowboarding, could be right, whatever. It's it's uh, that's actually uh, a still taken from the Art of Flight shoot um, when they were recording that movie. But so here's the thing: action adventure sport athletes are the best flow hackers on earth, right? That's why we use them. What that means is we now know what causes flow. We know there are 17 preconditions. These are called, that lead to more flow. These are flow triggers. Action and adventure sports are packed with them, right? But all of these triggers can be applied in any situation. And let me give you a simple example of this coming out of our research, the Flow Genome Project. So 
we've had some, we, uh, if you go to our website, theflowgenomeproject.com, there's a free flow diagnostic, right? Which tells you which areas in your life you're liable to find the most flow. One of the categories is, is the risk taker, the adventurer, the action sport athlete, basically. Of the people who've taken the survey, and it's nearly 7,000 people, 48% of them fall in the deep thinker category, which means they find the most flow when they're essentially doing the work of a knowledge worker, thinking, contemplating, working on problems, writing about ideas, that sort of thing, Not no risk involved. And those people, on average, putting them through our Flow Fundamentals course, our online digital training, right, are reporting a five-fold increase in flow, so a 500% boost in flow, a 700% boost in creativity, and a 300% boost in self-confidence on the back end. So these are people who have nothing to do with action sports. The vast majority of them wouldn't, you know, strap on a pair of skis and hop off a cliff to save their life. And yet, you know, with a fairly simple training, right, it's a six-week training, um, an hour and a half a week plus some homework, so it's not even that much work we're jacking the amount of flow up in people's lives by 500%. So yes, this is anybody, anybody can have more flow in their lives. It's not just these athletes. What is something that we all can do right now to enter into that state of flow? Cause I, I have, you know, several things that I do every day. Um, what's some, what's some options for people? Well, so we can walk through, let's walk through a handful of the triggers and let's just start with the, the psychological triggers because they're the most straightforward. These are, um, these are basically, you know, tricks you can play with your mind to drive yourself into flow. And the first thing you got to know about flow is flow is only a present tense experience, right? It can only happen when our attention is totally focused on the, on the current moment, right? right? So all of these flow triggers, despite, you know, what they sound like and what they mean, they're all just attention hacks. They're ways of driving attention into the now. And more specifically, if you really want to get under the hood, evolution shaped our brain to pay attention to certain signals more than others, right? These 17 triggers these are the 17 things that evolution has said, hey, these are the most important situations in your life. So it drives its attention. And the first and the most famous, and this was again discovered by Csikszentmihalyi back in, back in, the, in the 60s and 70s, is known as the challenge skills balance. What this means is there, we can get the most flow when the challenge of the task at hand slightly exceeds our skill set right? So you want to stretch. You want to be outside your comfort zone, but you don't want to snap. If the challenge is too big, you're going to create too much fear. This is going to block flow. If there's not enough challenge, you're going to be bored. You're not paying enough attention, right? But in this sweet spot, there's what's called the flow channel or Yerkes dobson curve if you, if, if you want to get more technical. And we've known about this for a hundred years, right? This is not kind of new research, but what it basically means is Every t whatever activity you're doing, right, if you want to produce more flow, you got to push yourself outside your comfort zone. Now, where this gets tricky, underachievers, it's hard because the sweet spot for flow, you're definitely uncomfortable, right? You've, you've moved past any, any sense of safety and security, and, and you're out there and you're feeling vulnerable. For overachievers, the problem is it's stretch but not staff. Overachievers, and you know, I've, I did this for years, I'll take on a challenge that's 20%, 30%, 40%, 50% greater than what, what is proper for the flow channel. I'll create so much fear along the way that I'll block my access into flow. So with flow, you want to 
we, we always say at the Flow Genome Project, you want to go slow to go fast, right? The secret to Superman is raising the challenge level a little bit every single day, right? What's hard about flow is you have to do it over and over and over. It requires tremendous grit. It rewards that grit, right? You get flow, it's intrinsic motivation, makes you really high and happy, and it's great. Um, but until it starts showing up, you have to be really gritty to push yourself a little farther every day and a little farther every day. And, and you know, some people, I always find that some of the best people at flow hacking are people who lift weights and have done so for a long year, over a long period of time, because lifting weights is about, you know, five pounds more once every two weeks, five pounds more once every two weeks, if you're lucky, right? And you're actually like moving up, you go up very, very gradually and you get really great results over time. Right. Um, say, same thing applies with flow. So that's a, that's a really, really simple, low level uh, flow trigger that any getaway can apply in any situation. Awesome. Yeah. That's a, kind of one of my favorite quotes is the, the best gift that you can give to anyone is an obstacle that they can just barely make over. You know, if you're just lapping over every obstacle that you have, you're not really developing yourself. And if the obstacle is too tall, it just becomes frustrating. You say, screw it. You know, so it's, I love you mentioned that because I mean, I think that's me all this stuff is metaphor for everything in our life. You know, we, we start to compound these little factors and right now it's like, cool. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm walking across the balance beam, like no big deal. Eventually that balance beam could be, you're walking across a 200 foot cliff, you know, it's just, but it's, it's that compounding that people end up being discouraged by. We think that these little steps don't make a difference. They do, you know, so I'm curious with the state of flow that your brain enters when you're in these various moments, does, is anyone able to access full 100% ultra athlete flow state if they're in that situation, that car accident or that, that near death experience, or is it something that it's, or is it something that it's like you need to harness and wield or like, what does it look like? Oh yeah. Okay. So yeah, you're actually asking a really good question. Um, so no, what, so what happens, so there's a flow cycle, right? Flow is not a binary. It's not like a light switch. It's a four stage process. The first stage of the flow cycle is known as struggle. And in this portion of the cycle, you're using the conscious mind. This is skill acquisition, right? This is, I'm learning, I'm, a, I'm learning how to swing the bat at the ball. I'm learning how to stay on my edges on my skis. If I, you know, when I'm in struggle as a writer, I'm outlining my next book and I've got diagrams of possible chapter structures all over my office and I'm talking to experts and I'm reading books and blah, 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 right? I'm in struggle. It's frustrating. I'm using my prefrontal cortex all the time and you, you really sort of take yourself to the brink of frustration to kind of kick yourself over. Besides the point, what I'm trying to say is what happens in flow is learning sort of a blind process. You're, you could be doing something over and over and over again. It doesn't feel like you're getting better. And then there's that day where it all snaps together. That, when it all snaps together, it allow, you've automatized the process so your subconscious can suddenly take over for your conscious mind. And that's, that's essentially flow. So flow will massively amplify whatever it is you're looking for, right? In business, we know from a, this 10-year study McKinsey did, top executives are 500% more productive in flow. Hmm. We, you know, and we know in various things it gets amplified, but you're only, you're going to be, it's not going to skip. It's not, you're not going to be a beginner surfer and suddenly you're Laird Hamilton. 
Right. You're going to be the best possible surfer. You can be all your skills, everything you've learned along the way that you could do. I could do this one thing this time and this other thing this time. They're all going to come together. You're going to level up your performance. You're going to take it to the next level, but it's bit by bit. And, you know, it, it's the funny thing about action and adventure sport athletes and people. One of the reasons it's very hard for somebody to say, like, look at a Laird Hamilton and they see him in a 50 foot wave and they think I could never do that. That's impossible. Who could do that? What you don't see is the years of Laird Hamilton surfing one foot waves, two foot waves, three foot waves, four foot waves, leveling up a little bit at a time, pushing up the challenge skills balance, pushing it up again, pushing it up again year after year. Flow will amplify learning. So we know, and this is research that the U.S. Defense Department did, in flow we learn 200 to 500% faster. So we, that's a massive improvement in learning. It's a step function worth of change in learning that you get. So you will learn the skills a lot faster. You will level up a lot quicker. But this isn't the limitless pill, right? This is not NZ48. Nobody, nobody's turning into God overnight. <laughs> Right. So the, my, I, I'm, I'm huge on analogies. So one of the analogies that I have kind of what resonates with me in this state of flow is almost like throughout the day, it's really easy to become scattered. You know, we have, we have this thought about our taxes and our boss and our car insurance and our cat that pooped on the floor, you know, whatever it is, we have all this stuff rattling around through our mind. I feel like when we're into, when we're into, into that state, more that like, you know, that animal instinct gut um, type of state, it's almost like we automatically organize all of those files for that time frame. And is that, is that kind of makes sense? Is that, a so there's, you, you, there's you're, you're poking at kind of two very interesting and overlapping points. So the first point is, as you pointed out, we suck at multitasking. The human brain is not built for multitasking and there's copious research coming out of Stanford about this. They've done enormous studies on it. We are terrible at multitasking. But what flow does, flow amplifies all of the basic neuronal processes. So at a really basic level, the brain does three things. It does information acquisition, right? Your senses are gathering data. It does pattern recognition. Your senses are you're trying to link the data you're gathering with old ideas. And then it's trying to make future predictions all the time. Your brain is constantly trying to predict the future. And we do this at a really low level. Like when you approach a door, you're, before you even get there, your brain is making calculations about this is how the knob will feel. And this is the resistance I'm going to meet. And this is how it's going to open. And when the reality matches your predictions, you don't notice you walk through the door. But when that doesn't match, right, your brain goes, hey, wait a minute, something's wrong here. Oh, the door is deadbolted. I got to do right. So that future prediction flow amplifies all of these systems. As a result, data processing goes up. We can handle more information. Flow is the only time you can multitask. And I'll, and I'll give you an actual effective hack here. So this is the other half of your question. Most of us are in flow. So flow is a spectrum. You can go from micro flow, which is like, I'm really, really focused on, on what I'm doing and time is passing really quickly and I don't notice. Like happens to everybody when you're writing a long email, right? You get into it, you're, you're drilled down, an hour goes by and you're like, holy crap, where'd that hour go? But this is a great email, right? That's micro flow. <laughs> Macro flow feels like a mystical experience. You get time dilation and you know it feels like you can see out of the back of your head and it, you know, the whole thing's crazy. And it really, like for the first 50 years we were looking at this from like the 1870s to the 1940s, it's longer than that, 70 years, 
we thought that we were looking at mystical experiences. It wasn't until Abraham Maslow came along and said, hey, wait a minute, flow is turning up in all of these research subjects of mine and they're all atheists. How could these be spiritual experiences that we went, oh, wait a minute, maybe they're not mystical, maybe there's biology here. But so macro flow really does feel like a mystical experience. That said, these states of microflow, they happen all the time, right? We drop into them a little bit and we don't notice. What I always tell people is as you get better at this stuff, right? Flow requires uninterrupted concentration. You got to, I, when I, my, I write the first three hours of my day, minimum, right? 4 a.m. to 7 a.m. I am writing. My email is off. My phone is off. My cell phone is off. I'm not looking at social media. I'm just writing. My screen is actually black except for my document, right? Uh, and, I'm, and I work, my office is at the back end of our fields out in northern New Mexico. There's nothing around. It's total isolation. <laughs> I get into flow very easily as a result, right? Because I can focus and I can, I can drop in. After I'm in flow, when I'm coming out of my writing session, right, that's when I do all my multitasking stuff because my brain is already able to multitask. I've just, you know, I've produced all these neurochemicals. I'm really, my multitasking ability, even though it's crap in humans, it's the very best it's going to be. So I find if I were to try to like multitask on the front end and not in flow, right, the crap in front of me is going to take an hour and a half. But if I wait till after, like I focus my attention and done this, you know, writing session that's dropped me into flow, and then I go to the stuff, all the multitasking stuff, I'll get through it in like 20 minutes. Awesome. And so, so this state is, is a, a very tangible thing. It's not just like this, you know, it's, oh, it's like this mystical fairy dust, you know, it's actually, we can measure this stuff, you know, so can you break down a little bit of like, is this delta, theta, alpha, beta, gamma, like what's, what does it look like in the brain? So it doesn't look like any one thing. So three things happen. You get transient hypofrontality, so there's a loss of activity in the frontal cortex. There's a neurochemical cascade, and then there's a shift in brain waves, right? So normal waking consciousness, as you know, is beta wave, right? It's a fast-moving wave. Then daydreaming, right below beta, a little slower, is alpha. Below alpha is theta, which, you know, is we're essentially only in theta when we're in REM sleep or the hypnagogic state and we're falling asleep. Flow, as a rule, as a baseline, takes place on the borderline between alpha and theta. But what we really see, so flow is a it's an action state, right? We're, we're making decision after decision after decision after decision, right? There's a cycle. The brain goes through every time it makes a decision. And some of these, you know, so the brain will kick out of beta and it'll jump to alpha. It'll go back to beta and then it'll drop down to delta. You know, you go through this decision-making process. If you're not in flow, what usually happens is you get stuck somewhere. You're, you'll pop up to beta and you'll have this random idea and you'll follow it out and it'll pull you out of flow, whatever. Right. In flow, we can drop back to this alpha theta baseline very, very quickly so we don't tend to get hung up anywhere in the decision-making cycle. So we cycle through all these different brainwaves, everything you just named, very, very quickly and tend to return to this alpha theta borderline. Awesome. And so I, I love this part in the book. There was one quote that you had in there where you mentioned, I think you refer to alpha waves versus beta waves as almost like the angel on one shoulder and the devil on another shoulder. And I've, I've so felt that in so many instances, you know, be it rock climbing or be it, you know, slacklining or whatever it is, where you're like, one of the things that I've been saying for years is, 
So one of the things I like to do is, is slack line and high line and kind of like, it's like a tight little band of webbing and you walk across it. Um, you know, so the longer the line becomes, all of a sudden it starts to become exactly that. And so when I read in the book, I was like, yes, that's it. You know, it be, it, because you start to debate back and forth in your mind between this, you know, now I'm like, oh, it's alpha beta, you know, wavelengths, but it's literally like this feeling. It's like the hyperfrontality or the hypofrontality. It's like your brain is naturally instinctively saying, you know, don't jump you asshole. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, whereas, whereas the, the other aspect of you that's saying like, come on, just stay with it is it wants to drop into that flow state. Yeah. It's a, so the, 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 the devil, right. Or is beta, right. It's your brain. It's fear. And it's that argument. And it's, I have discovered by the way, that like there is, you cannot use risk as a flow trigger. Of course. Right. It focuses attention, drives attention. And now it's a great flow trigger. But what I've discovered with risk is that it's a really delicate gateway. I have to, if I'm, if I'm, if I try to take a big risk, right, Kodak courage, whatever, to kick myself into flow, quickest way to go to the hospital. I don't. I've learned that what I, I use, I like to use, like even as an athlete, like I use, I use creativity far more than I use risk. So I will. You know, on a day of skiing, say, I'll take four warm-up runs and then runs like five through seven. I will try to creatively interpret the terrain as much as possible. Creativity, pattern recognition, the pattern recognition, the linking of ideas together, that's another flow trigger. Whenever we link ideas together, your brain gives you a little burst of dopamine. Dopamine is a focusing chemical, among many other things, and it will drive attention into flow. So I will use the creative interpretation of the hill as a way to kick myself into flow. And once I'm in flow, then I'll do the risky thing I've been wanting to do all day. But I no longer do the risky thing to try to kick myself into flow because I've ended up in the hospital too many times. I've got too many broken bones. And what's your story with that? What's your background with broken bones? And food, you, know, <laughs> you want to know how I'm broken? <laughs> yeah. Do, do you have any, any kind of ridiculous sort of like flow going wrong? <laughs> oh, my God. Well, so what you have to understand, and you, you asked earlier how I got into this stuff, and there, are, there were a lot of different doorways. But one of them was I became a journalist in the early 90s. Action sports were a thing then, right? Like they were new. They were, and if you could snowboard or ski or rock climb or surf or do any of these things – there was work as a journalist. So I couldn't do any of these things very well. I could ski a little bit, but I couldn't do anything else very well. But I lied. And I spent the first five or six years of my career chasing athletes around mountains and across oceans and whatnot. And when it was done, I had broken almost 80 bones along the way. So the reason I went into science writing so heavily is I, you know, I met a lot of scientists along the way because when you're covering action and adventure sports, you're in the middle of nowhere and the only other people out there with you are hardcore scientists. So I, you know, along the way I discovered I had this enormous aptitude for science. I would, you know, I'd meet these guys and I'd hang around a couple extra days after the trip and I'd be like, look, use me like your grad student. I just want to learn from you. And it was really fun. And I, so I got this great firsthand science education along the way that was sort of my introduction into that. But I, I shifted my career because I realized that like, you know, I was already, you know, when I, I, at one point I put 65 hairline fractures in my leg and legs. And when I was at the Cleveland clinic and they were, they were doing looking at my x-rays and they were like, look, you, you shouldn't have even walked in here. We don't know how you're moving and you're certainly never going to run again or ski again or do anything like that. 
And I, of course, told them to fuck off. And I, you know, went and did a decade worth of hot or uh, stanga yoga. And, you know, I do everything fine. But besides the recovery story, um, it was really clear to me that I wasn't built to chase athletes around mountains. I mean, I still do it a lot, but I just like too many bones, too many broken bones. I had to do something else. I was going to be dead before I was 30. Right. And so one of the things you had mentioned was almost, I don't think you said exactly like this, but almost like you, when you're skiing down a mountain, it's like you're being played by the mountain. You know, I think of, of that with like music, you know, when you were really drop in, when you dance awkwardly, it's because you're thinking about dancing. When you ski or snowboard or do anything awkwardly, it's because you're thinking about it, you know, and that can be from several things. One of which is when you're first learning something, you're going to be predominantly dominated by your prefrontal cortex before it starts to go down into the more, the deeper movement aspects of your, of your brain. I'm curious for you, um, do you have any like tools or tips or like is, is, is yoga something that we can kind of use to do to drop into this state or is meditation something we can use to drop into this state? Like what's the safest ways to drop into it? Well, I mean, you got to understand there's no safe or unsafe way. I mean, you're, again, you're coming at it as if flow is something that is primarily an athletic activity. Coders in flow built the internet, video game designers in flow built the video game industry, right? Like there are books written about coding and flow. Some of the best uh, best flow research ever done was done on improv rappers and jazz musicians, right? So flow shows up all over the place. Again, at the Flow Genome Project, we train everybody from the US Special Forces to major technology companies to all the top VC uh, uh, financial services companies in America. So most of the people we work with are nowhere near an action sports environment, right? Cool. So there's what, the better answer to your question is, and this is where things get a little tricky, and this is where we always say at the Flow Genome Project, nobody can do your push-ups for you. And some of that is you got to just do it yourself, and some of it is you, it, a lot of self-awareness is required. So I, I mentioned earlier there's a flow diagnostic on our website. This will tell you the areas in your life you are most likely to find the most flow, but put it in different terms, there are 17 flow triggers based on your genetics and the environment you were raised in, you're gonna be more susceptible to certain triggers than others. I'll give you a classic example. I'm an adventure junkie, right? I love going in through risk, and if there's not risk in the equation, I'm gonna get locked out of flow, right? A lot of people can go to Burning Man and dance the night away in this huge crowd and get absorbed in that and get kicked into flow that way. I cannot. I don't merge with the crowd ever. Like none of that stuff works for me. I need risk. My wife, for example, we run an animal sanctuary. Altruism is a trigger for flow. For when there are other people's lives on the line, you're trying to help something bigger than yourself. It focuses your attention. It drives people into flow. She could care less about risk. She hates it, would never do it. But when she's out working with our dogs, drives her right into flow. So you have to figure out for yourself what are where you're most susceptible, right? The flow diagnostic on our website can help. And there's a lot of self-experimentation along the way. But once you, you know, once you determine that, then you sort of know how to steer. And what's the impact beyond just being able to do amazing things? Like what's the impact of, of this state of mind on your overall health? So we know three things. The first, and this is old research, this came out of that Chick Sent Me High psychology study we talked about earlier. 
he discovered that the happiest people on earth, and that's actually a misnomer, it's the people who score off the charts for life satisfaction and well-being are the people with the most flow in their lives. Yeah. So flow absolutely, you know, will raise the quality of, of your life. It appears to be, there's things called emotional set points. This is basically why you always feel the same, right? It doesn't, you, you, why at you know, 20 and at 40, you sort of, your emotions exist in the same bandwidth. These emotional set points get set up when we're really young and they're very hard to move once they're set up. This is why people who win the lottery, they'll get a burst of happiness for like a year, but a year later, they're back to where they were before emotionally. Or people who suffer on the other end of the spectrum who lose a limb, right? They're sad for about a year and then they return to exactly where they were before the accident, right? These are emotional set points. There are very few ways to permanently raise your emotional set point. Frequent access to flow does it. It will push you up so you will be happier overall, more life satisfaction. As far as health is concerned, the neurochemicals that underpin the flow state do a couple of amazing things. The first thing that they do is they boost the immune system, all of them, right? They really drive it up. The second thing they do is they reset your nervous system back to zero. So it's a very, literally, when you move into flow, all of the stress hormones are flushed out of your system and they're replaced by these feel-good, positive neurochemicals. So you calm your nervous system down a lot. So Herb Benson at Harvard, who did a lot of the fundamental research on this stuff, has said, and he may be overstating the case a little bit, but um, probably not by much. He has said he believes that most cases of so-called spontaneous healing, when suddenly somebody gets better very, very quickly and you have no idea why and they've been really, really sick, he thinks it's flow. He thinks it's this combination of the nervous system being reset and the immune system being seriously boosted. So there's great long-term health effects. And I think the coolest other thing that happens long-term is, and this is research that was done uh, by Teresa Amable at Harvard, so we talked about inflow, flow elevates creativity, 700%, you know, 500%, depends on your numbers. She discovered that that heightened creativity outlasts the flow state by a day, by two days. And what this suggests, we don't know for sure, but it suggests that flow actually trains the brain to be more creative, to think more creatively, creatively over a long, long haul. This is a big deal for two reasons. The first is, as you know, doesn't really matter where you turn these days. In every field, creativity is fundamental to success. It's kind of like the core skill for life in the 21st century, right? right. The other thing is the Red Bull Creativity Project, which is the large, it was done with MIT and TED and Red Bull and a whole bunch of really cool scientists, the largest survey of creativity ever done. And they learned two things. The first is that, wow, creativity is absolutely fundamental to society. Two, we have absolutely no idea how to train people to think more creatively at all. Turns out the only way we really know to consistently train people to think more creatively over time is flow. Huh. So, yeah, I think I, I love that you mentioned I, I love thinking of this from the perspective of overall health, because I think so many people in our reality, it's almost like we're starting to become domesticated, you know, and I've, I've felt this off and on throughout my life of, you know, getting really wrapped up in work or whatever it is. And perhaps it's some work that's not necessarily like your passion, you know, that might not put you into that deep flow state. And I think that so many of us, we've kind of almost like sold out for whatever, the security of having the mortgage or having the car, you know, whatever it is. And we sell out and we, and we sacrifice this mental state 
for this said security because it's it's you know it's a little bit scary perhaps to like go out and climb a mountain or whatever it is i'm curious with that you know is is this state addictive because that's one of the things like we think like adrenaline junkies you know is that a misnomer adrenaline junkies yes it is a misnomer um turns out that flow is addictive it is probably it's arguably the most addictive state on earth. The five neurochemicals that underpin it are the five biggest feel-good pleasure drugs the brain can produce, and flow appears to be the only time the brain produces them all at once. So you are literally getting the most addictive experience on earth. Scientists hate the word addictive, right? They instead call flow autotelic, which means it's an end in itself. It means that once an experience starts producing flow, we will go extraordinarily far out of our way to get more of it, right? Or another way to think about this is flow is often described as the source code of intrinsic motivation, right? So it's one of the things when we talk about, one of the reasons flow is so important in business, for example, is this motivation. 71% of work American workers, according to a recent Gallup survey, are disengaged or actively disengaged on the job. It means they hate what they do, right? Three out of four of us hate what we do majority of our time. The other 29% have jobs that produce flow and they can't wait to get back there, right? And it's a huge boost. And just to put this in perspective, Salim Ismail, who is the uh, global ambassador at Singularity University and uh, former head of innovation at Yahoo, has said, look, one out of 10 startups on average succeed. The single characteristic, defining characteristic on the startup that succeeds versus the nine that fail is the amount of flow they produce on the job. And the main thing you're looking at is motivation. A lot of startups are packed with flow triggers. If you know what you're doing and you build your company properly around these flow triggers, Right? You're going to have a company where people are dying to get to work. They're going to stay super late. They're going to give you, you know, a thousand percent more. And um, to boot, you're going to get, they're going to be kicked into flow and they're going to perform at a 500% higher level than anybody else. And this is a, a really critical point because a lot of people don't get this in the business world. Just talking about business because you were talking about, you know, people stuck in these jobs. If you can start producing a lot of flow on, a, on the job, you're going to be. faster than the competition. We're training up companies right and left in this stuff. Once they get good at it, there's no way anybody can compete unless they're using the same thing. How if you, if one group is 500% more productive than the other group, it's not a race. It's already over before it started. So, you know, there's, there's a real edge right now in business. If you start applying these principles in your organization, there's also an edge in anybody's individual life. And, you know, we always say at the Flow Genome Project, if you're stuck in a dead-end job, right, pick a hobby that produces flow. Because the more flow you get, the more flow you get. It doesn't matter. I can go out go skiing, get into flow. I'm training. It's a focusing skill, right? I'm training my brain to focus in a particular way. It applies when I go back to my life as a writer. It applies when I, you know, am working and running the Flow Genome Project as a businessman. It applies across the board. And the... Flow I'll get in, you know, while skiing will help me get into flow while I'm negotiating deals for the Flow Genome Project. It crosses domains. So pick something, start painting watercolors or gardening or do whatever it is, playing guitar. Learn something that tends to kick people into flow because once you're in flow, 
right? You get what it's called the high perch experience. It kicks you up. It's like this emergent property you have. You're, it's like your position so high above your life. You can see all these opportunities that were invisible before. It's because information processing, pattern recognition, and all this stuff is so amplified. But if you're stuck in that dead end job, kicking yourself into flow states are going to give you ideas for how to get out of it. So there is a, there is a flow based solution here. On the other side of it, and I think you bring up an important point, um, I have discovered with high performers the secret to fitness, the how do you get out of the chair. I work myself till I'm totally, completely exhausted and done every day, pretty much. And then I go work out. And that's the secret, right? I do my, I exercise, I get my cardio early and I do my lifting or balance training or whatever else it is late on, you know, work days. Um, and you just, you just got to get in the habit of sucking it up. But it's great training because every time I've got nothing left, my brain can't, you know, think of one more idea. And I go hit the gym and I put in a hard workout I think to myself, oh, look, this is what I can do even when I'm exhausted. And that's critical information to have. I think I love um, in action sports, right? Action sports, survival in an action sport environment is about most of the time, how hard can you go for about seven minutes, right? Ski hill, seven minutes top to bottom, downhill mountain biking, seven minutes top to bottom, that kind of thing. So I want to know that I can perform at my absolute best, meaning in flow, when I'm totally exhausted. So I try to train totally exhausted because then when I get into that situation on the mountain, I'm not scared by it. I'm, I'm not debilitated. I'm back in my comfort zone. Hmm. I love it. You know, and so it's, it's, it's like, you can't, you can't make, or it takes money to make money kind of thing. It's like wealth begets wealth and health begets health and flow begets flow. You know, I think that so many people, which I don't think it's true that you you need money to make money, obviously, but it makes it a lot easier. Sure helps. (laughs) Sure helps. (laughs) You know, so I think it's really, it's, it's like mind blowing, man, that you say 70% of people report being dissatisfied with their job or 75%? So it's, it's better than that. So 71% report being disengaged, which means I don't like my job, or actively disengaged. So actively disengaged is my favorite euphemism. <laughs> it literally means I hate what I'm doing so much, I'm going to work to sabotage the company. <laughs> So that is not okay. It's not okay. <laughs> and and it's, 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 it's amazing that that is the point that we've come in our culture, you know, and it's like, and we keep on grinding on. And one of the things like I, I, absolute fact, it is mandatory for our brains to enter into this state for optimal health and wellness, you know, and I'm saying that anecdotally and then from, you know, the research that you have, but mainly just for myself, like I've, I've felt the domestication of myself, almost feeling like you become like neutered at some point, the longer that you go without entering this state, the more you lose your cojones, man, the more you lose like your zest or your passion for life. And then what ends up happening is people end up becoming addicted to drugs, which induce a state of flow. I think that's my question. Is that a question? And there's no, so there's no quick answer. The drug problem, there's actually two sides to the drug problem about flow. Yes. People, a lot of people, if you can't, some of it, I think is you're just looking for relief, right? Our brain is chattering on and on and on, that internal voice, right? We talked about why time dilates, right, in flow. The sense of self, same thing. Prefrontal cortex calculates our sense of self all over the place. As it turns out, your sense of self 
goes away. As a portion of the brain known as the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex turns off, your inner critic, that nagging always on defeatist voice in your head, shuts up. So we feel this as liberation, as freedom. It literally lets us reset ourselves, right? So if you're not getting that reset, if your brain isn't turning off, yeah, will you turn to drugs or booze or television, just anything to try to shut it off? Absolutely. There's another side to this that's equally insidious, which is you see this a lot in professional athletes. Professional athletes will have these jobs that produce a tremendous amount of flow, and so especially in action and adventure sports. And when they're not on the job, right, when it's after the event or whatever, they want that feeling again, and they will turn to drugs and alcohol to chase that feeling. So you get this bliss junkie syndrome where people are chasing the high and they don't realize that it's a cycle. Flow is a big high, but it's followed by a deep low. That's a recovery period, hmm. right? The brain needs to produce certain neurochemicals, certain, you need certain foods, certain vegetables, certain whatever to reproduce these neurochemicals that get expended in flow. It takes a little while. Huh. So on the other side of a flow state, there's this deep low, right? You go from, I feel like Superman to, oh shit, I'm really mortal, right? And it feels really bad because all the brain's feel-good drugs are gone for a little while. You have to hold your mud through that period. A lot of people don't, and they turn to drugs and alcohol to chase that high. So you have problems where if people aren't getting into flow, they will try to mimic it with drugs and alcohol. And if people are getting into flow all the time and they don't understand that it's a cycle, and there's this low that follows the high, they will chase, the, chase that high with drugs and alcohol on the back end. And it actually doesn't work because, for example, if you drugs, dopamine shows up in flow. Your brain has a limited supply of dopamine. When you do cocaine, all that happens is the brain releases a whole bunch of dopamine. Cocaine is essentially dopamine. But if you're chasing flow where you've exhausted your dopamine supplies with drugs that, you know, and almost any upper produces dopamine, you're going to further exhaust the supply. You're going to keep yourself locked out of the state for even longer. Is there any, so now like Colorado and Oregon and Washington. Okay, so, yeah. Okay. So the caveats here and this, what I'm about to say is legal only in Colorado and Washington. Yeah, right. <laughs> Marijuana is different. Okay. And the reason it is, so, so literally the cheapest flow state available to man is what's called the hippie speedball. It is about 25 minutes of exercise, followed by a cup of coffee, followed by a bong hit. And the combination perfectly mimics the neurochemical cocktail that is flow. So it's the cheapest flow state around. Um, and it and mimics the state. I mean, is it, is it, you know, there's, there's what's called the skin bag bias, right? People believe that if you're using a technology to get you into a state or a drug, which is another form of technology, um, it's not as authentic. It's actually not true. What's going on in the brain is the same. It doesn't matter. Um, but if, so if you don't have the skin bag bias, yeah, the hippie speedball will perfectly mimic a flow state. It's the cheapest way in. Okay. And so that, so that's my main question. Cause I have a lot of friends that climb, you know, and they're like really, really strong rock climbers and they smoke weed before they climb. You know, it's, it's like, sometimes it's like, you're going to belay me and you're going to smoke weed. <laughs> it's like, that's probably so, a bad idea. Yeah. Okay. The, the belay thing is a problem. Yeah, that's the belay thing is a problem. <laughs> and, and, and personally, you know, I climbed for a decade and I like marijuana never helped. I could never get past my fear of heights. I got good. I could, you know, I could just, Kind of onsite 11B, 11C sport routes. Trad, I was in the low tens. Um, I wasn't. I was never a great trad climber, but I was okay. Could never get past the fear, and marijuana only accentuates that fear. It can. 
Um, so it never worked for me, but it worked for a lot of climbers. But the funny thing about marijuana is, and by the way, if you're curious about this stuff, don't take my word for it. Go out and read a book called Understanding Marijuana by Mitch Earlywine. He is at, he was at USC. He's now, I want to say, at the University of Tennessee. He's done phenomenal research on this. But one of the things people don't know, so there's all this stuff about, hey, how marijuana dulls your reaction times. Well, sort of. They test this stuff with a light box, right? It's a big tic-tac-toe board and a square will light up and you have to tap it. So if I take stone person and sober person, I put them in front of the light box. When I light up one square, tap it, sober person wins. When I do it two squares, right? Square in the upper right-hand corner on the bottom left, and I tap, tap, sober person wins. But once you get to three squares and up, stone people will win. And by the time you're at five, sober people aren't even in the running. So marijuana, it's the anadamine that the marijuana produces, actually enhances our ability to do more complex patterns and tasks. It only hinders us when the tasks are really rudimentary simple, but the more complicated they get, if you know how to work with the substance, you're, it, it's, it's got a performance enhancing quality. It's got a lot of performance enhancing qualities that nobody wants to talk about because it's gonna, you know, marijuana is prevalent in sports and it's a performance enhancing drug, right? Right now, they don't treat it that way, so they're not rewriting record books, but that's only because nobody's actually looking at the actual research. If you look at the actual research, yes, it will mess up your lungs for sure, but if you can get past that, right, it has all these performance boosting qualities. Right, I mean, where would music be without some of these supplements? You know, like, I'm, I'm kind of curious, like... Well, for, is, I mean, forget even music, like, you can... I mean, I'm not going to advocate for LSD, but pretty much every piece of personal technology you, you use on a daily basis has an acid trip at its basis. <laughs> exactly. Pick up your computer mouse. That was Doug Engelbert on acid, right? Steve Jobs said that taking acid was one of the three most important things he's ever done in his life. Go through, you know, this is John Markov's great book, What the Dormouse Said, about kind of the birth and origin story of Silicon Valley. People don't realize the Grateful Dead they got their start playing techie parties in Silicon Valley. Then they moved up north to San Francisco. They were they were a garage band for super geeks. Yeah, and so my curiosity with that, and I'm, I want to be respectful of your time too. Is it okay if we go for like another five to eight minutes or so, or is that? Yeah, that's perfect. And then I'm gonna have to jump. All right, awesome. Um, you know, so I'm curious with that, with the with the utilization, because when you say drugs, it's like oh, drugs, like it's such a derogatory word. I think there is a, a definitive difference between heroin which is considered a drug and marijuana which is considered a drug you know and so I'm, I just want to like separate that right now and so if we're say we're talking about marijuana I think yeah, let's become, say let's just say the only things we're saying could have positive effects used under the right conditions are marijuana psychedelics and empathedelics let's say that opiates as a general rule they lead nowhere good and let's just say that stimulants as a rule lead nowhere good right yeah. Um, I'm not, this is not hard and fast because as you said, we would, Miles Davis did enough cocaine on a daily basis <laughs> to kill an elephant, right? And yet he reinvented jazz three different times. So clearly there's some people can find some benefit there. So you can't, the thing that's important to know is this, all of the five neurochemicals I talked about that produce flow, that's what all these drugs do. They boost those neurochemicals. That's what's going on. There's no real difference under the hood 
between certain, some of these, I mean, there are after effects and there's addiction and there's a lot of problems. There's a mess everywhere, right? But at, from a biological level, there's no, they're, they're doing the same things, right? Whether it's deep meditation, spiritual experience, you're doing LSD, you're in a flow, you're getting similar neurochemicals, different proportions. It's a knobs and levers thing, right? We're turning on certain things in the brain, turning off certain things in the brain. We're amplifying certain neurochemicals. We're turning down others. But it's ultimately the same set of knobs and levers that are producing all these so-called altered states of consciousness. They were playing in the same toolbox. And Some are more beneficial than others. Right. And so my thought with that is, you know, I don't want to become dependent upon anything, you know, and so, but if you can use certain tools, be it psychedelics or be it you know, marijuana or whatever it is, as almost like a flashlight to expose you to a potential reality that you may have not been seeing before, then I'm, I'm on board, man. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious with, you know, your thoughts on that. Like, I see it as a potential activator to take you into that state. And then hopefully we can wean ourselves away from that so that you can own it. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it's, you know, I, I will tell you something because, you know, look, if you've read my books, you know that I've experimented with plenty of psychedelics and other substances. Personally, in terms of, you know, a lot of people, Steve Jobs, right? LSD was one of the, the three best things I ever did in my life. That's not my experience with it. If I want, I think a, you know, a flow state that I get kicked in through action sports or writing, for me, I get far more insight than I do on psychedelics. A lot of people have very, very different experiences. That's my personal experience. I think these are all great tools and you should know what you're doing and understand the dangers and all, and all that stuff. And I agree with you. Addiction bad. I mean, the good news about psychedelics and, you know, you can argue this about marijuana. They go back and forth. But psychedelics are not habit forming. They're non-addictive chemicals, They're right? breaking oftentimes. And, I mean, you know, my favorite example is DMT, which is the most powerful psychedelic on earth. But there's a joke about DMT, which is you can never overdose because by the time you go to take a third hit, the person <laughs> smoking the pipe is gone, right? There's no way to overdose because there's no, like, there's nobody left to inhale, right? Um, and I kind of, like, I think that's metaphorical for a lot of psychedelics. They're not habit-forming. Nobody is going to want to do this stuff every day. First of all, it won't work. You can't do it every day right? LSD, they exhaust the neurochemical supply. So you have to start doing more and more and you're getting diminishing returns, right? It doesn't, they don't work that way in the body, first of all. And second of all, they, so they're not like opiates. There's no, nobody's going to, nobody's going to have a, I have a maintenance habit with LSD. Now the, the drug doesn't work that way. The body doesn't work that way. So, you know, you can experiment with these things a little, a little more safely. And I'm not advocating for or against, as I said, I personally have found other things are more beneficial for me, but I do think it, there's a whole upper possibility space of human experience that most people are unaware of, right. right? You access it through deep flow states, through psychedelics, through a lot of meditation training, through a lot of different things, but it takes practice. And most people get to spend very limited time there. When you get to spend a little bit more time there, it unlocks a lot of possibilities. One of the quotes that you mentioned in the book was Travis Rice. And he said, at the root of fear is separation in flow that has gone completely. You know, and I think that that was, is super profound, you know, in the sense, and it's like so many times, oftentimes, you know, we get stuck in this like artificial computer reality. It's like, I have 6 million Facebook friends. It's like, dude, that doesn't mean anything. You know, we get wrapped up in this artificial reality. Wait, 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 hold on. You mean my Facebook friends don't mean anything? I know it's mind blowing, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, and so I think it's, it's, it's just so important that we get back to the roots of, you know, what makes us human? You know, what makes us want to jump out of bed in the morning? It is not Twitter friends. You know, and so I, I just before we, we start to veer off or, you know, let, let you go, I'm curious, do you have any uh, triggers that you use to get you into this state? You know, it's like, do you listen to, you know, some song or, you know, whatever it is, something that you do to help you get into writing or whatever? Well, I do have a song. So... <laughs> In athletic activity, right? One of the reasons athletes have their pregame routine, right, is it helps them focus and drives them into flow. So when I'm going, I listen to Reeducation Through Labor by Rise Against nice. every time before I'm about to ski or rock climb or whatever. That's my, that's what I do. I'm an old school punk rocker, so I listen to something really, really loud and fast, and it works for me. Awesome. Um, but I, you know, what you're, 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 you know, iPod is great because flow needs uninterrupted concentration. You're blocking out the world, right? So the only thing I find is you want to sort of, it's got to be a routine. So, you know, at the beginning of every book, for example, when I start writing a new book, I usually make a mix of, you know, 10 to 15 songs. And that's the mix I listen to every day. I start it when I sit down to write and it you know, I follow it into flow and it just, it's something else that, you know, drives me in. So, you know, patterns and figuring out, you know, figuring out those patterns for yourself is key. Awesome. And where can people find you? You mentioned the website, which I think is a radical website. I really enjoyed perusing through there. Where do people find more information about you and your other books and just where do they contact? StephenCotler.com is the website, my website. Uh, flowgenomeproject.com is the Flow Genome Project website. You can follow me on Twitter at, um, at Kotler Steven and, uh, or find me on Forbes. I write a blog called Far Frontiers. Awesome. And then you also have the other book, uh, Abund It's Abundance, right? It is Abundance. Yeah. And, um, and maybe at some point we can, we can get you on again. I'd love to talk about that because the ideas in that book I think are fantastic. Um, I would absolutely suggest anybody run out and grab Rise of Superman, Abundance. Both of them I thought were fantastic reads. Um, one thing that I always kind of uh, finish up with, with people with is if you could go back and give yourself a younger version of yourself some advice without copping out and saying everything's perfect, I love my mistakes, what would you tell yourself if you could go back to when you were, say, 18? Well, I would tell myself, I mean, to me, the most important lesson in, in, or one of the more important lessons is learn how you, I would tell myself how I learn, right? There, are, I've, I've learned how I learn. I think there's no more important lesson than figuring out how you learn. For example, I'm a macroscopic learner. I need to know the big picture before I can understand the small picture. To give you this in examples, for me to understand uh, any environmental issues or ecology or whatever, I had to learn systems ecology first so I knew how the whole big picture worked and then the individual components, oh, this is how a forest works. This is how they, they work for me. But more importantly, learning is invisible, right? And that struggle period sucks and it never gets better, ever. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It get, may, as you get better at flow, it gets shorter, but it doesn't get any more fun, right? You're miserable. And when you look at any super successful person, know that they're just as miserable trying to learn new things as you are. It's just how we are. But the thing that I 
is so hard is that the learning is invisible. You step up your game, it's an emergent property. An emergent property is technically defined as where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. As you're learning, you're just dicking around with the sum of the, with the parts, right? This part and this part and this part, and it doesn't feel like learning. It just feels like frustration, but there always comes a day where it locks into place. You know, and I'll give you a, a great example from my own life. I had a crazy, right, I just launched a new book, The Follow-Up to Abundance, Bold, came out in January, and I've got another book coming out in May called Tomorrowland. My fall was insane, and I got more out of shape than I've been in my entire life, and I was gonna ski myself back into shape. On the 10th day of ski season, I tried to make a 90-degree turn, 50 miles an hour, didn't stick it, season over. Ankle gone, I did not obviously ski myself back into shape. So my ankle can now kind of hike again. And about a month ago, I started like, you know, I've got a big pack of dogs because we run an animal sanctuary and I hike them in that country every day. But I was doing like 20, 25 minute hikes on my broken ankle and going like a quarter of a mile. So I started about a month ago, I started upping the distance and going up more hills and blah, blah. And the first month was awful, of course. And then about a week ago, I got to one of the hills that I like to climb and I started climbing and usually like halfway up Every day for the past month to halfway up, I have been panting and so pissed that I'm out of this out of shape and whatever. But a week ago, I got to like the halfway point and I found myself accelerating. I didn't see it coming. I didn't know it was coming. It was not a day that I felt particularly good. It just out of nowhere, suddenly I'm leaning into the challenge and I'm rising to it. My body was just there with me and all of it kind of came together. And suddenly I'm, I'm, you know, I'm back at the front edge of, you know, physical fitness for myself, um, still, you know, limping around. So not a ton I can do. I've been great in the gym. I can do a hell of a lot lifting weights, but I can't do a goddamn thing cardio wise. But, uh, what, I mean, but once again, it was that same lesson of like, I didn't see it coming. And for a month, I've just been like in my head, I've been beating myself up. Like, how could you be this out of shape? It's going to take forever to get like all that stuff. And then one day, boom, there's the lesson. And I think Everything I've ever done is like that, right? You don't see it coming, so it feels miserable up into the moment it's actually a victory, right? And that key point that the misery is gonna last right up to the moment of victory, there's not a reprieve along the way. That's what I would tell myself because I could solve so many problems. You know, oftentimes, you know, the difference between success and failure is just sticking with it for another couple weeks. And that's what I would have told myself. I love it. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. If you ever make it up to Oregon and you want to have Smith Rock or do some mountain biking, we can Dude, do that. Dude, I used to spend September in Smith Rock. I lived in that parking lot. <laughs> yeah, it's a good straight. parking I lot. That park, or that camping ground every year. Um, so good. Well, yeah, yeah, by the way, buddy, you uh, got a place to stay first anytime. leader fall I ever took was on Heinous Claim. I don't think I know Heinous Claim. I'm, I got to check it out. I'll look it up in the book right after this. That's the, yeah, it's a, it's a 12A that like was, is way over my head and I got way extended and took like a 60 foot whipper on it. Oh, good for you, man. That sounds like a good flow state. <laughs> it was a good whatever. Um, well, thank you again so much. I appreciate your time. It was awesome getting to chat with you. Aaron, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. All right. I'll see you. Align Podcast.
Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. I greatly appreciate your comments and your shares in iTunes. They determine the ranking and the visibility of the show and they make me smile. So I look forward to reading those guys. Be sure to check out the website, aligntherapy.com. That's A-L-I-G-N therapy.com. On there, you can find my blog. You can find this podcast, more information about the topics and the, and the uh, guests that we've had on the show. You can find hundreds of absolutely free instructional videos on self-care, functional movement, how to get strong, how to get fast, how to get exactly what you want out of your body. You can check out the online coaching where we work work out how to optimize your movement practice so that you can live optimally and pain-free for the rest of your life. As well, be sure to check out the self-care kit where it is as small enough to fit underneath the seat in your car. And it's like a physical therapist, a massage therapist, all wrapped up into one package. I know you guys are going to love the website. I know you guys are going to get a lot of value out of it. And I look forward to hearing your comments. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening. And remember to join the movement by subscribing to the podcast. If the information has been helpful, please share and leave your comments in iTunes. Aaron personally reads each one and it makes all the work worthwhile. Together, we will make a difference and continue to bring more powerful and inspiring messages to the world. Movement Medicine.